Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Again, welcome to The Ville Church. If this is your first time, we want you to feel right at home, and uh, we thank you for coming this morning. We know you have a lot of other places that you could worship, and we are encouraged that you are here with us this morning. My name's Rodney. I'm one of the pastors. I'm associate pastor here with, uh, alongside Pastor Jay and Elder Tony, and this morning I've been uh, given the privilege to bring God's Word, and uh, with that, would you join me in prayer as we prepare, or ask God to prepare our hearts, yeah? Father, I just uh, ask you to take uh, our hearts and do for us, God, what we can't do. We, we can't open our eyes and we can't create our own faith. We cannot allow our own eyes to see. And would you do that for us? Would you take this physical means of words coming out of my mouth, the reading of your word, and do the supernatural, do the impossible for us as we trust in you and you alone and in nothing in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in James chapter 3, and we're going to be through, uh, going through verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Um, if you don't have your Bible, if you have a Bible app, whatever you have, if you could just get it real quick. Uh, we'll have them, I believe, on the screen. We may or may not have them on the screen, but we'll be going through a lot of verses during this uh, time together. If you could start the clock as well for me, gentlemen. Um, try to do this in a timely manner. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, I'm going to read two verses at a time, and we're going to go through 1 through 12. And uh, so we'll be starting with verse 1. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers. Is that like the first thing I want to hear <laughs> coming to preach to you? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged in, with greatest strictness. There's another scripture that is said that to whom much is given, much is required. There's another place in scripture where it says that we will give an account for every word that we say. We'll give an account as a teacher, as a pastor, as a shepherd. So James is starting and talking about speaking. He's talking about the tongue. And obviously we have to use our tongue to teach. Verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many ways. The key word there is all. That means every single one of us in this room, we stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man or woman. It means both. Able also to bride, bridle his whole body. So James is saying, look, all of us stumble. And if you're able to control and bridle your tongue, you're a perfect person. And I believe James is saying, meaning perfect as in never, ever, ever doing wrong, making a mistake, sinning, ever. Not in the heart, not in the mind, not intention, not in word. 
So that pretty much leaves every one of us out, right? We all stumble. And he's talking about what we, when we talk. Verses 3 and 4 says, If we put bits into the mouths of a horse so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. James is giving an example of the ability of the tongue being so small and what of an impact it has in comparison to a bridle that is put into a horse. Horses that I've ridden have been anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 pounds. The weight of a bridle is about a half a pound to a pound. That's amazing that you can actually control it. Having a little bit of that experience of training horses, basically it's called uh, releasing the pressure from the bit when the horse responds in the right manner. There are literally horses that you don't even need a bridle because they get so used to just the movement of your body. But just a little bridle and a little touch on it, it's not meant to hurt them or pull them or jerk them, it's meant just to guide them. Such a little thing can control such a big animal. Literally the pressure of a wild-trained horse only takes like one half, like maybe eight ounces of pressure just to get them to turn or to stop. He gives another example in verse 4. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So we have these large ships, large, large ships, and there's much power there, whether through wind or through motors, but yet there's this little rudder, it's just a little piece of whatever, metal or maybe wood, depending on the ship, and as it turns, as it goes from side to side, it directs the direction of that large ship. It's an example of the impact of the tongue. He continues to say in verse 5, so also, again continuing, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. So Paul is describing that when the tongue is used for unrighteousness, it affects all of our body, affects all of our life, even to the point that with the same tongue, if left without Christ, could set even on fire, meaning the fire of hell. It could encourage others towards hell. It could uh, condemn oneself to hell. Uh, why? Because it's full of sin, if it's used in a sinful way manner. Verse 7 says, for every kind, let me go back to this actually, um, it's like also compared to a forest, and many forests have been burnt, thousands and thousands of acres and houses and people's lives have been taken by one little spark, one little word, one little misuse of a tongue can cause that much damage. Verses 7 and 8, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So we see lions, right? We see tigers. We see bears. That's right. 
tamed, right? Man is able to tame them. They're able to, uh, you know, get them under their somewhat coercion or control. Then he goes on to say, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord, verse 9, and the Father with it we curse, and bless the Lord and the Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is speaking to believers, and he's speaking to the first church in Jerusalem, and this church was used to adding, bless the Lord all my soul, with everything what they said, right? You can hear people say that. Yeah, you know, I went, got up this morning, bless God. You know, uh, I'm going to church this morning, bless God. You know, or uh, I love doing this, praise the Lord. You know, so just this blessing towards God. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all within itself. But at the same time, to bring that same verbal blessing to our Lord and then with it curse people. Very important that we see this word people, which means other image bearers of God, people that are made in God's image, who are made in the likeness of God. He says, from the same mouth, verse 10, comes blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. So Paul is driving this point to make sure that we understand that Amongst the believer, amongst the church, we should not bring a blessing towards God and a curse towards another image bearer of God. Does that mean that that'll never happen? No. But it shouldn't be a practice. It shouldn't be done without regard, with any kind of remorse, like, oh, it's no big deal what I just did. Um, it should not be done without having some kind of repentance right 11 says does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water and then it goes on so he's going to nature now and in this time in this area there was many deserts so a spring meant life like they understood what it meant to get some fresh water from a spring because they can't drink the salt water and then it says can a fig tree my brothers bear olives or a grapevine's produce figs. In other words, if it's an olive tree, it'll produce olives. If it's a grapevine tree, it'll produce grapes. Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. So he drives this point home saying that it is impossible, impossible for us as human beings to be able to control, to be able to uh, get a hold of our tongue in a way within ourselves, within our own nature. And I would like to submit to you and talk to you about what really needs to happen in order for that to happen, in order for us to have uh, good things to say and for us to bear good fruit with our tongue. So what James is driving at is he's stating that we can't get fresh water from a saltwater spring. James is talking about a good work or a good fruit, obedience to God. He is saying that our tongue should only be used for good or to bless. But he's also saying that the tongue should not gossip or lie or slander or tear down. Again, obedience and good fruit. 
But really what he's saying is that it's impossible to just to try on our own strength and our own ability to produce this good work, this fresh water out of a salt water spring. I believe he's talking about the nature. The sinful nature of man, which is the salt water, can no way produce fresh water. In Romans I mean, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Jesus goes on to say also in John chapter 15, verse 5, which Jay talked about last week, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we see that the fruit that is produced from a good tree, who's that tree? The tree is Jesus. He is the vine. He is the tree. We are the branch that's connected to the vine and to this tree. Separate from it, we are dead and unable to do nothing. But connected to the vine, he produces the fruit, not us. Jesus, uh, in John 7, 37 through 39, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is talking about this living water, this fresh spring, this fruit that comes from God, right? This good tree that bears good fruit, it comes from the inside, right? The, the spring comes, the water that comes, comes from underneath. So we, hear, we see here again that the living water is flowing from a new heart. And, the, and that's what the Spirit will give. The Spirit will give a new heart. And that's what says, the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 in the Scripture says, now this he said about the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work to give a new heart. It is the Spirit's work to give a new life. In other words, inside of us is a nature. This is the source of the spring, and out of it comes this salty water because it is a sinful nature. We need a new source for the spring and a new nature that will flow with fresh water. Jesus is saying the only way is by the Holy Spirit. The New Living Translation, Psalms 51.5, says this about our nature. It says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. We were, were born with a sinful nature that was passed on from Adam. Yes, we were, man was created perfect without sinful nature, but since Adam decided to disobey, that sin nature now was passed to all of us, even within our mother's womb. So we're born in sin and out of sin, right? 
And so we're born with this sinful nature, this spring that yields salty water. Romans 3.23 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. What does that say? All. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. For all have sinned, verse 23, and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what we call total depravity. The Bible teaches that as a result of the fall of man, every part of man, his mind, his will, his emotions, his flesh, and even his effort to do something good is corrupted and tainted by sin. This all falls in line with what James is teaching, that it is impossible to tame the tongue. He starts off right away and he says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. There is no perfection, there's no way within ourselves that we can accomplish this. We need a new spring that produces fresh water. We need a whole new nature that produces good works or good fruit. What's the answer? The answer is the gospel. I believe that James is pointing us to the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you skip to verse 17, which I don't want to preach through the next verses because that's the verses that will be preached next week, I'm going to say something real quick. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. What is this wisdom? This wisdom is Jesus. This, is, this wisdom is the gospel. It's God's wisdom, his wise way. So what is the gospel? The gospel is what God has done in his son Jesus for sinners what they could not or never do for themselves. Throughout the rest of this teaching and through when you're looking at all of scripture, it is important that you guys grasp this. Out of everything that I will say today, this is so, so important and you need to keep it in front of you for as long as you can through these next moments. The gospel is what God has done in his son for sinners, what they could never do for themselves. Paul clearly declares the gospel to the church of Corinth, and these are believers, and he's declaring it to them. He says, now I would remind you in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So it's what saves us. It's what makes us stand. Right? And verse 3 says, For I deliver to you first of first importance. In other words, the main, most important part here, I deliver this to you, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's interesting that when Paul wants to speak about something so important and make a point and drive it home, he's not talking about, and this is what man does. And this is what you should do. Or this is how you get it done. He doesn't do that. 
And he's speaking to believers. And it's so important for us to captivate this and and capture this and, and retain this. See, what God did through Jesus, what the Father did through Jesus for us was that he lived a perfect life that we should have lived, right? And then he paid the penalty for our sin. He told Adam, the wages of sin is death. You will die, die spiritually and die physically, but definitely the spiritual death, where, in other words, you have no desire for God. You have no understanding of God. You cannot uh, uh, will yourself or make yourself choose to accept and believe God. You become spiritually dead. So he, that penalty of that death, Jesus died for on the cross. And then he resurrected, signifying that his death was accepted by the Father. So he just didn't live the perfect life. Great, God lived the perfect life. I don't have to live it. Oh, he died. He paid for the penalty. Okay, I'm off scot-free. I'm no longer penalized. But he also resurrected. And that resurrection signifies that it was accepted, which gives us a chance to also, not a chance, but makes it possible for us to be resurrected, possible for us to have a new life. I can't overstate that the gospel, again, is what God did all on his own, not having at all to do with, not having at at all to do with anything on our part. We've got to get this. This is so important. This is vital. This is crucial. So I want to make this point a little bit more clear. This is going to mess with us a little bit, but the gospel is not the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is not me up here helping you come to a point where you understand that you you are dead in your sins and that you need a savior. That's not the gospel. That's a means of maybe preaching about the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not believing the gospel. The gospel is not 10 of you raising your hands, receiving Christ or accepting Christ or believing in Christ. That's not the gospel. That may be a response to the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not receiving the gospel. So it's not even if you accept it or you receive it. Again, the gospel is what God did and not what a person does. And I feel right here it's important to talk about what Paul said to the Galatians, and I I can't quote it verse by verse and and, and exactly accurate, but he says something along these lines. What the way you came to Christ, right? How you got started, how you got saved was through the gospel, and now how you're going to live out your life, which is sanctification, is through the same gospel. Or are you going to try some other ways and some other means? And he ended up telling them, who has bewitched you? If anyone preaches anything else, let them become, uh, let them be accursed. So when a person is born, they are born with this sinful nature, dead in their sins, unable to do nothing at all to help themselves whatsoever, save themselves or bring themselves to new life. So God is the only one that can do that. God is the only one that can do that. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, uh, verse 4 and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, 
That means his mercy never runs out. It's rich, right? And he loved us with this mercy. Even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. So what happens when someone is dead? They have no response. They have nothing to do. There's nothing they can do at all. They're dead. It says that's when, not when we were alive, not when we made a decision, not when we read our Bibles, not when we come to church, not when we try to be a good person, none of that at all. It says for when we were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our trespasses, meaning that we were not just dead, but we were guilty, that we had crossed the line, that we had sinned in that dead, sinful state, no, not alive to God, not able to, to do anything but to continue in sin and the direction of sin, that's when he made us alive together with Christ. That's the new birth. That's the, 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 the new life through the Spirit. That's what Jesus was talking about, that you'll have a new life. You'll have a new spring. And it says, for by grace you've been saved. And that's what we call regeneration, a new nature, making it new. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And then verse 8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, well, wait a minute. Now we got some faith there, so I know this faith. I had to work this faith. No, it says even the faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift from God. It's a gift that God were to give you to be able to believe for the first time and to receive and to accept the good, glorious news of the gospel. This is all God's doing. So what is our state in which God saved us, dead, unable to do anything, with a sinful nature that only produces salt water and bad fruit? But thank God for salvation. And that is, salvation is that God saves us from the penalty of our sin by grace, right, and faith, through faith. But even when faith that we believe, we received it, even the, the faith we have received it from God. And again, it's all the work of God, and it is not of us. The only thing we can bring to our salvation, this is very important here, is our sin. The only thing we can bring to our salvation is our sin. That's what we bring. You know, for some of us, like me, which I think God's doing something there. I, I believe God's doing something there. I struggle with shame and guilt. I have a tendency to take my focus off of Jesus, the gospel, and put it on my sin. And when I put it on my sin, and that's all I have to bring to Christ, I think my sin is so bad that I got to do something about it, that I got to make up for it, that I got to, you know, be penalized for it, that I got to feel bad for it even. And, uh, and for a long time, like, pay a penalty. But the thing is, is that my sin is much worse than what I can imagine. It's much worse than that. And yet we believe that Jesus, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The Nicene Creed says we believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
right? So even though my sin is bad, it's way worse, and I have an improper view of even my sin. I think somehow that my sin is so bad that God would not forgive. I think that it's so bad that I have to pay a penalty for it when it's worse than that compared to the holiness and the perfect God that we served. It's so much worse. But yet, he forgives. And to me, that's life-giving. To know that whatever sin that I do, God forgives. So the only thing we're being to our salvation is our sin. And again, with salvation comes a new life called regeneration. So going back to James, there is no way we could even think for a moment that we could have fresh water come from a salt water spring. This means that there needs to be a new source for the spring, hence a new nature. Remember, we just talked about the sinful nature we were all born with. Meaning that we have a natural inclination to sin given... Given the choice to do God's will on our own, we will naturally choose to do our own thing. Regeneration is when God puts a new nature in us, and it's very clear in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, and I will give you, this is Ezekiel saying, uh, what the Lord is saying, I will give you a new heart. Who's I? God. And a new spirit I will put within you. That's what Jesus was talking about, the spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone. That's that dead state, that separated from God, dead heart that has no love or care or concern or desire for God from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that's beating, one that's alive, one that feels, one that desires God. And I will put my spirit, this is the glorious mystery of the gospel, that God would put his spirit and unite us with Christ, where we now are united with him. He puts his spirit within you and causes you to walk and, and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. God is the one that puts the spirit. God is the one that causes to obey. He enables us. How? Through the gospel, the same faith that Jesus was able to save us with that same acceptance, that same faith, that same belief, he's able now to regenerate us, make us new. So as I, I, I ask again, who is the one doing here, as we see in Ezekiel? God is. So regeneration is a new nature, a new spirit. God puts in new desires in us that we did not have before. Before we came to Christ, it didn't matter. It, it didn't matter wasn't even on our radar. And all of us know that have come to Christ, there was a point where God was not on our radar. We could sin and it didn't matter. We didn't even know we were sinning. We didn't even know about all the sins we did do. But as soon as he puts the new nature, all of a sudden it's like someone turned on the light. So he gives us new desires that we didn't have before. Desires for having a relationship with God or obedience to his word or wanting to express thankfulness to God and speak blessings to God, desires to talk to him, desires to love others. Wow, he does that. The gospel, again, is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This brings salvation and regeneration. Remember, just before 
that Jesus said he is the vine and we are the branches, that's what just happened through salvation. We were disconnected as branches. We were dead branches, and now we have been connected to him, all by him doing, and he's the vine, and we have new life spiritually. Salvation and regeneration is instant. That happens instantaneously, but that's not all God does. He does not stop there. He does not stop at just giving you a new heart and a new mind, a new spirit. What about the fruit? What about the fresh water? So he just doesn't stop. So God does not just save us and give us new desires, and then like a wrestler in a WWF wrestling match. Have you ever seen that? Anyone see WWF, like Hulk Hogan and the Warrior, and I don't know what the newer names are. Anybody ever seen it? Who's seen WWF wrestling? Okay, so that's when they get in that square pin, and there's two on two, and one goes at it, and you know, boom, boom, and then he tag me in, tag me out. So this is not that. It's not like, okay, you know, you're new, you're saved, tag, you're in. No. Where you're left to wrestle with obedience and you're left to produce this fruit or produce this fresh water. No, not at all. This is called sanctification. Just like the gospel, it is the continuous work of God. Faith in the gospel also sanctifies us. This is why I spent so much time emphasizing the gospel because it does not just have to do with salvation. It also has to do with producing a life of obedience. And I believe James nails it down and pushes us towards the gospel that it is impossible to tame the tongue. It's impossible to bridle your tongue. It's impossible to change your life. It's impossible for you not to stumble. It's impossible for you to produce something out of a dead nature. So if we get this part wrong when it comes to the gospel, then somehow there was something wrong. I mean, somehow there was something that we have to do with it. That's what we're going to say. If we get it wrong, we're going to say we have something to do with it. And then we will also believe the same thing when it comes to freeing ourselves from sinful habits. According to Westminster's Shorter Catechism, sanctification is real transformation. Real transformation. It is a continuous, continuing change worked by God in us. Freeing us from sinful habits, forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. So let me say it maybe in an everyday language. God setting us apart to do something that's good in our lives is what sanctification is. It's a, it's a change that he makes. And it's continual. And he does it. And he frees us day by day, little by little, from sinful habits, forming in us Christ-like affections. What is Christ's affections? What is Christ's want and like and virtue? Christ-like disposition. We begin to behave and act and look like Jesus, right? But that is, the, again, his work in us. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35 says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's the work of God's free grace, not ours. It's the work of God's free grace. 
whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. There's no work for us. It's God's work. And are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. So God's free grace as he worked it in salvation and was able to do it by dying on the cross, the power to die, the power to live a perfect life, the, the ability to, to allow him you know, to choose to die, the ability to resurrect from the dead is the same God with the same power working in sanctification. It's a free gift. He's working. That same power is working. That same work of God enabling us more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. See, regeneration is instant. That would be God creating a new spring, going back to James. He creates a new spring, right? Or a, or a source for a spring, right? The source, maybe the whole. Sanctification is continuous. God just doesn't stop at saving us. It doesn't just stop at setting, uh, as giving us a new heart, a new mind. It's continuous. Would be God bringing forth the fresh water from that new spring. It's all God's doing. Anytime, put it in this way, our tongue speaks a blessing, it is the work of God's free grace. Anytime you do something good, it's the work of God's free grace. It's God that does it. That takes off such a load because we are constantly under this performance, right? I need to do good things. I need to make things happen. I, I, I need to perform in order for me to feel accepted in my job, accepted in my family, accepted in this life, and sadly, accepted even before God sometimes. It makes us uh, put our faith and our focus in ourselves, which is futile, which is, which is hopeless. And that's why it becomes a life of anxiousness. It becomes a life of discouragement and despair because we've tried and we failed and we've tried and we failed and we tried and we failed because our total depravity where sin has affected every part of our life we cannot do anything good within ourselves but the blessing of that is knowing that when there is good done it's done through God so therefore we don't have to make it happen we don't have to muster it up we don't have to carry the load of it the only reason why we would was to take credit, and that just builds up pride. And the Bible says, pride cometh before a fall. What the most beautiful part about this is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful 100% in making this happen. Not us. It's a promise. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is so much hope here. We are enabled to deny our sinful nature and enabled to obey and to live for God out of this new nature. God works in us. God enables us. What's real important here is that the focus is not us and our doing, but it's the gospel and what God did for us. It's real important to catch that. 
See, we can get so caught up even in what God is doing that it's about us. So we even take the working of God and the good fruits and say, oh my gosh, look at all these good things that I'm doing. And oh, this is awesome. You're still focused on you. And that in itself is going to take you away from God. Our focus always needs to be on God's good works, Jesus' good works, Jesus' life, and all he did on our behalf. And the glorious gospel that he's doing it and continues to do it and has done it and it's done forevermore. The gospel is actually a past event. It's already been finished. It's already been completed. If we keep our focus on that, then guess what? Those good works will come forth. He'll work those good works in us. So God stands alone without any human effort. God stands alone with any human effort. So it is this grace, right? The grace of God. What is the grace of God? Titus 2, 11 through 14, it says, For grace, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God is Jesus. It's a person, the person and work of Christ. It's by grace, right? Free grace that God works this changed, transformed life. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what we have to trust in, not in ourselves. And this free grace and this grace of God is a person, Jesus. Verse 12 says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, rightly, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might re- he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So he says, it's this person, Jesus, that saved us, and we look forward to the day we'll be glorified. Glorification is when we no longer are stuck in this human state with a sinful nature and a new nature, but we all now have a glorified being, we'll be glorified, and we'll be like Jesus, we'll go with Jesus forever. We look forward to that. We look forward to that, but also knowing that we can deny ourselves. He's teaching us how to deny ourselves. He's enabling us to deny ourselves and all its worldly lusts. And knowing that, hey, everything that we have sinned, Jesus had to die for. So therefore, we don't want to continue in this. We want God to deliver us from this. This is such good news that we can't sanctify ourselves and just like we can't save ourselves. So the gospel stands alone without any human effort. James is saying there's nothing we can do. We need a new spring. We need a new tongue. We need a new nature. We need a new life. And it's something that Jesus did, God did already through the gospel. So how will you respond to the gospel today? How will you respond to the gospel? I want you to know you don't have to change yourself to come and trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness. You don't have to change yourself. I know that maybe some of you are thinking that I need to get some things right and I need to fix some things and I need to make some things happen in order for me to even, you know, get to this place, wherever, whatever that is, whether it's going to church or reading your Bible or talking to God or, or whatever it is that, that keeps you from even opening your heart and your mind to Jesus. No, we can't do that within ourselves. We can't fix ourselves, we can't 
clean ourselves. We can't make anything happen for ourselves. So you, you, you can't do it, and you don't have to do that because you can't. There is no need to wait. God only calls those that have sinned. There's no need to wait. He only calls those that sin. That's the only ones. As a matter of fact, that's all we bring is our sin again, our guilt and our shame. If you come to Jesus, he will receive you. And I'm speaking to you as believers, if you come to Jesus, he will receive you because he's already received you. He promises to give you rest. See, Jesus is gentle, he's merciful, and he's a saving Lord. God offers grace, and God offers rest. So what is your response to the gospel today? Will you receive him? Many times we think this is for someone that has never believed, but actually this is to us that believe as well. Will we receive the gospel today? Will we believe that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Will we trust that we are united with Christ, we are union with Him, and that some way, by some miracle, it is a great mystery, but that He is now transforming and changing and producing good fruit in our lives all by Himself? Will we trust that? That no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been doing, no matter what you're caught up in right now, that God, by putting your faith in God, in Jesus, in what he's done on the cross, in what he's accomplished through the resurrection that is accepted, we are no longer separated and alienated from God, but we have now been united, and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit in Jesus is the same spirit in us, giving us new life, gives us a new tongue, gives us some good words every once in a while. Gives us a way to bless God instead of just cursing. Gives us a way to bless others. But it's him working in us, not us. I don't know about you, but there are many times I felt like, man, this is just like, I can't do this. And the reason why that happens is because I'm focusing on myself and I'm focusing on right and wrong and doing, which is the law. And the law by itself cannot produce righteousness. It takes something foreign, something outside of us, which is what God did. It takes something miraculous. It is a miracle if you're hearing these words and you believe them. It is a miracle if you'll leave today with confidence and faith in what Jesus has done to be able to sanctify you, that he forgives you, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. That is a miracle today. God is doing something through the natural means of the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God, something supernatural. And that's why we come together as a church to hear this, as James was faithful to preach and teach the Word so we would come to this place of confidence in Christ. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take partake of the Lord's Supper. And this is so important because this is where it all comes to, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, again, this is going to be professing, this is going to be putting our confidence in what Christ has done. This is to do it in remembrance. We believe that somehow, some way, when we partake 
what Jesus told us, take of this bread and eat it. This is my body. I give it up for you. Some way, somehow, God is doing something that we can't explain or understand. It's a physical means doing something supernatural and spiritual. The same way you came to Christ. Some foolish preacher was preaching the word of God. Some friend shared something, whatever it was, and that was not the gospel, but it was the gospel itself that did it, right? But we take, partake of this, and yes, we're, we're taking these elements and we're taking of his, his uh, drinking of the, of the juice that's signifying his blood that was shed for us on Calvary. That again, he died for us. He paid the price for us. Now, Paul is very clear here. It says that every person examine himself, um, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If there's some way, somehow, you think that you have something to do with your salvation, saving yourself or being good enough to eat would be unworthy. That would actually be unworthy. And if you are going to come and take of the Lord's Supper knowing that there's nothing I could do. I need forgiveness. I receive forgiveness. I proclaim his death because of what he did, not anything I do that's actually worthiness. Paul just wants to make sure that if you've never, ever believed or received Christ and you don't believe that he died for you, don't take of the elements. Why? Because that would be putting judgment on yourself. That would be saying, yeah, I heard this, it doesn't matter, and I'm going to actually come up and partake of it that I don't believe in, that I don't receive, that I've never accepted. But if you've accepted it, I want you to trust and remember and do it in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. So if you've never, ever, today's your day, if God is speaking to you, what will you respond to the gospel? What will you respond to the gospel today? I pray that some way, somehow, Father, through the speaking this morning and through these words, through your word, through your power, through your ability, you will cause us to see, you'll cause us to hear, you'll cause us to believe, and that, God, we'd be able to put our hope and faith in what you do for us, for everyday life, for everything that we're, we're facing, for living itself. Just like your word says, it's no longer I who live, but it's you, Christ, who lives in me. Thank you, Father, for this morning. And I just pray for each and every one of us here, whether the, we have never believed before that we would believe, and if we are believing that we would continue to put our faith in you, that we would turn from that one way where we are trying to do it on our own without you. In Jesus' name, amen.